it is quite a sight. You, you feel small when you stand next to this. Have you ever been on an Airbus 380? You know, one of those double-decker airplanes that are used for long-distance flights. Well, tip to tip, an offshore wind turbine is the length of two Airbus 380s. It goes, uh, just from the uh, sort of air noise. Uh, I mean, you got to hold your head back uh, to be able to, to see the rotor. And that's just what the eye can see. Below the surface of the water lies advanced machinery that's vital for wind energy production. Foundations or substructures, they are above eight meters in diameter, close to uh, 100 meters long. I look pretty small, even though I'm, I'm not a small guy. Designing the foundations of offshore wind turbines is a complex task, not least because they lie out to sea, where the conditions are typically harsh. You need to take quite a number of things into consideration. The wind, obviously, but also potential collisions, waves, tides, earthquakes, and the weight of the turbine itself. But what if maths could help us optimize the design of these wind turbine foundations? What if doing so made them cheaper? And what if making them cheaper made it more likely that more countries would invest in that technology? These are some of the questions we'll explore today on Ingenuity Talks, a ramble podcast about ideas that help solve global problems. I'm your host, James Clasper, and today I'll take you 30 meters under the sea and further still. We'll get right into the machinery and then up into the cloud and discuss the complex software that Ramble uses to design the foundations of offshore wind turbines. It's the story of software that was once used to design oil platforms, but has since come a very long way. Indeed, by helping in the design of wind turbine foundations, the software is now facilitating the necessary transition to renewable energy. I think it's amazing that we can make electrical power out of the wind. That's Søren Ewell Peterson, the market director in the wind unit at Rambol. That's been around for ages, ages. I mean, the old Dutch uh, windmills. Søren has helped develop markets for wind turbines as far afield as China, South Korea and Japan. Uh, but now, a huge structures on the water. That's also always fascinated me. He recently popped into the studio for a chat and started out by telling us how the unit began. In 2002 uh, or 2001, uh, the company decided we'll start a department dedicated to doing uh, wind. And I was asked to start that. So uh, we started out two people. Shortly after, we were four. Uh, we're now a bit more than 300 working with uh, wind and in particular with offshore wind. So it's my responsibility to um, grow new markets, new clients and new services. So yeah, let's talk about wind. Just, you know, kind of back to basics, really. I mean, when we talk about wind energy, what I mean, what are we talking about? What's like spell it out for the six-year-old in me? It's a beautiful way of uh, producing electricity. Um, the wind energy is simply just the wind blowing. And then uh, the rotor starts to turn. 
and uh, it produces the energy. We connect some cables to the wind turbines, and uh, if it's offshore, uh, connect to uh, to an onshore substation. Uh, then we run the electricity into the grid, and um, it's there for use. And the beauty of it all, we usually measure the size of a wind turbine in megawatt. One megawatt is sufficient to supply 900 Danish households with electricity. Uh, not the total amount of energy, but with electricity. And uh, we are now seeing wind turbines in this uh, size 12 megawatt. So that means that it's 12 times 900 for one single wind turbine. Actually, during the month of November and December, there have been days where the wind turbines have produced more than the electricity consumption in Denmark. So we have exported uh, this energy. I think that's pretty fantastic. Even so, wind turbines only constitute around 2.5% of worldwide electricity usage. So, why isn't it more widespread? I guess, from the beginning, it was a matter of what's the cost of energy produced from wind. Uh, back in the uh, 70s, there was a political decision here in Denmark. We, we do not want uh, nuclear power. So there was an increased use of onshore wind turbines. And um, then uh, Secretary of Energy uh, decided, let's try to build some test offshore wind farms, uh, utility scale. All these decisions also coincided with the oil crisis. So simply, we had to do something. Other countries did had uh, have enough uh, coal, uh, oil and gas, whatever. So they were reluctant to start. But what we are seeing now, increasingly new markets are actually moving. Take China. They are being accused of um, polluting a lot. They got the most ambitious plants in, in the world. I mean, alone, one of the provinces, Guangdong, their plants are for at least three times as much offshore wind as has been installed in Europe to date. Bangladesh has started looking at Morocco, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. So things are turning. It's moving slowly, but sort of it's what you call ketchup effect. We are now waiting for the big splash. And and so what what are the the uh, the push or pull factors that are leading those countries to to start investing in these long term renewable energy projects? In particular, China has realized that the growth in energy consumption cannot sort of be accommodated by the growth of nuclear and thermal power. So they have started uh, having these plans for offshore wind. Take Taiwan. Uh, They have an official policy, no nuke. They need to have something instead. So they got political decisions for 5.5 gigawatt. Uh, and uh, most of the European developers, they've gone to Taiwan now uh, wanting to build. And, and projects are being developed there. So it, it's sort of a, a change in the energy mix. Uh, it's a, a requirement for less emission. I mean, we're all going to have to try to, to arrive at this maximum two degrees Celsius. So it's, it's all part of, of this. When most people think about wind turbines, they think about what they can see, the rotating blades, or at least I do. In fact, 
I see an offshore wind farm every time I cycle to the beach in Copenhagen to swim in the sea, even in winter. And I can see how choppy the water is going to be from how many blades are turning. And like most people, I don't really think about what lies below the surface of the water, which is to say the foundation and the substructure. But it's precisely the design of these substructures that Ramble has made its biggest contribution to the industry. In fact, today, Ramble has a 60% share of the market for designing wind turbine substructures. Can be concrete, gravity-based, can be steel monoparts or steel jackets, floating for that matter. We're also working with that, floating support structures. To understand what's required when designing these substructures, let's go offshore and take a close look at a wind turbine. If we take uh, one of these 9, 10 megawatt turbines, we're typically talking about a rotor uh, with a diameter of 160 to 170 meters. And if you stick that up on top of a 130 meter stick above uh, the water surface, that's sort of what you got. Then we got about uh, 20 meters down to the water surface. And uh, then uh, we are moving in 30, 40, up to 50 meters of water depth. Uh, now, and then we got this uh, the substructure, both the substructure in the water and in the in the seabed, and uh, they could often extend forty to sixty meters below the seabed. It's a, a, a huge, huge structure. Just imagine the wind turbine is sitting there for twenty five years, and it's moving all the time. So, we really gotta have to have full control of what we're doing. And at the same time, not to overdo things, because this development of the cost of the energy within offshore wind is also owed to mass fabrication and to optimization. So it's very important that all parts of the turbines are being optimized with respect to cost and to production. And to perform this optimization, Ramble uses its very own software, Rosap. Ramble Offshore Structural Analysis Program. Rosap has been developed over the course of 30 years in close cooperation with Ramble's structural experts and a team of analysts and designers. And ironically, it was first used to design oil platforms. It started out in, in oil and gas like 30 years ago. Um, they started developing an in-house software, uh, which we then started using when we started uh, the wind division. And uh, we have then sort of developed that software further to serve for offshore wind structures. And um, that's where uh, we have been capable of contributing sort of with our part to take care of the structural design and doing optimization. What the software is doing is analyzing all of the different factors that could come into play when you install a wind turbine. There, there are many different factors. For a single position of a wind turbine, we, we do like 5,000 to 10,000 different load combinations. And we do that for every single position in a wind farm. Um, if we did not do that, we would have to take a conservative approach where we say maximum load all the time from any direction. And that's not necessary. Uh, 
As an example, uh, we've just completed uh, some designs uh, in, in China. A local design institute, their monopiles, uh, the weight of those were 2,500 tons. We could shave 1,000 tons of each single monopile there. And imagine if you got 175 wind turbines times 1,000 tons, that's a lot of money. And that takes a lot of um, sort of capacity, a lot of number crunching, but uh, we've found that we do get a lot out of it. This is an investment in saving money. So the savings we provide are much bigger than what our costs are. Okay, it's time now to leave the ocean and rise up into the cloud. You see, software programs that run complex calculations incredibly fast rely on huge data storage and processing power. And that's only possible thanks to cloud-based computing. Until a few years back, uh, we had enormous amounts of uh, computer power. We, we run several projects in parallel. So it was like, take your place in the queue, line up, and then you can use the computers. Uh, then we started doing uh, cloud computing, which is speeding up on our calculations. We're, we're not nearly as um, sort of sensitive, say, if we got a huge deadline. Uh, then it used to be like, okay, nobody can run other than this project during the weekend. Uh, or you're going to have to do your computer runs during the night. Now we got a lot more capacity um, via the cloud. And uh, we also do have a project going together with Google. And um, we can really feel that on our execution time. Uh, we are really improving from days and down to hours, and it's really going to be uh, faster. It started out approximately one year ago, and it is to have a setup where we can store uh, big data and have fast access to big data. That's Ronnie Peterson. He works in the offshore wind department at Ramble Energy. One of my ongoing projects is the collaboration with Google. Ronnie's based in Esbjerg, a harbour town on the west coast of Denmark, where the wind whips in from across the North Sea. We got him on the line recently to help us understand the complexity of the mathematical model ROSAP uses. Imagine you have a lot of data coming from the design phase, numerical data, and, and then on top of that, you get the measurement data. From a single position, you'll get approximately six terabytes per year of data, but that equals to filling up 200 iPads with data per year per position. And next to that, we want to have access to the most advanced computers so we can run faster with our software, but also it's scalable so we can include more and more data as we go along. So that's why we approached uh, Google. In material science, fatigue is the weakening of a material caused by repeatedly applied loads. To illustrate why that's relevant to wind turbines, Ronnie came up with a somewhat familiar example. You have to imagine that an offshore wind turbine plus the foundation is a, a complex coupled dynamic system exposed to dynamic wind and wave loads, potentially also seismic loading and ice loading. So these loads means that your structure is exposed to cyclic stresses. And you can compare it to breaking up a spoon 
where you move the spoon back and forth. And by doing that, you introduce tensile compression stresses. That's something steel doesn't like. And eventually you break up the spoon. And that's what we call fatigue damage. So that's basically a weakening of the material caused by repeatedly applied loads, you can say. And that's why it's important that we have the tools to accurately capture these uh, loads. So at a certain point, having been exposed to repeated pressure over time, a turbine will eventually break. Ronnie and his team are using that knowledge to design their foundations. To verify that your design models are okay and not too conservative. What we're talking about is that for a large wind park, you use steel, what equals to 20 Eiffel Towers of steel. So that's a lot of steel. And if we could potentially just save two or three of these Eiffel Towers, it's a good business case. To optimize the optimization, if you will, Rambo has started measuring what's actually going on on any given wind turbine. So we've started uh, working with monitoring. We put instrumentation uh, on the structures, and then uh, we uh, measure what's happening. By that, we can back calculate how the the entire structure, wind turbine, substructure, foundation, how that behaves. And then we can verify our structural models, and we can also try to shave off some conservatism. So that that's a new, relatively new thing we are working with. Uh, in particular, we are going to be working with that um, in China because of the typhoons and the earthquakes. While we are we- working currently um, down south in, in the Guangdong province, this typhoon season, there were, I forgot whether it's 16 or 18 typhoons passing the province. And, and some of them go on all our project areas. So it's very important for us to understand how that works. So let's consider a standard typhoon. The wind speed could reach up to 150 kilometers an hour. Now imagine a wind turbine installed out to sea in the middle of that. It does impact in two ways. Um, We get much larger waves, and of course the wind speeds get uh, much higher. And then usually um, when we got strong winds, the direction of the wind is not changing a lot. It does change, but not a lot. While you are in a typhoon, uh, you know, you got the eye. So one moment, you got wind from one direction. Next moment, it may be perpendicular. That means that uh, you, you need to, uh, to consider that in your structural design. You also need to consider that you may have to shut down your wind turbine, which gives a very different loading on the substructure if you shut it down. How we do it is, uh, we got our so-called mid-ocean guys. They're the guys uh, doing numerical modeling of uh, wave and current and tides. So they will model uh, typhoon events, uh, and we calibrate those models using measured data. And then we feed that information into the software. Uh, But of course, as we are moving sort of in new grounds, if you like, um, we need to have some measurements to satisfy ourselves that we really are okay. Uh, We do stick a little bit of fat into the design uh, when sort of we are in new, untested grounds. But uh, measurements should hopefully be 
able to, to say, okay, take it easy, you can optimize a bit more. As Søren says, if you want to cut the cost of wind turbine foundations, you have to trim the fat. And to do that, you need to keep optimizing the performance of your wind turbines, which, when it comes down to it, is all about your data. The trick is to make big data to smart data, you can say. And what makes the data smart is that you can use them to update your design methods. So this is the part where it gets really technical. Ronnie and his team are currently building digital twins that continuously learn and update themselves as their physical counterparts change. The digital replica uses data from the installed wind turbine to analyze its efficiency and status in real time. A digital twin is something you can establish if you have a prediction model, and in this case it's our numerical model in ROSA. Then the structure is built and installed in the water, and then you decide, okay, I want to measure on that structure. And that's what we call a true digital twin. So that's a mirror of your, your physical model installed in water, a one-to-one representation. And what we're doing is we can combine our numerical results with measured results. And that's really strong because then you can look into design improvements and also lifetime extension. When you have the digital twin, then you have the real picture of how the structure is responding to, to wind and wave. And then you're also able to predict the lifetime of the structure. Not the one that you estimated or computed, but the real one based on the real uh, loads. And in most cases, then you'll be able to lifetime extend the structure. Indeed, from saving steel to extending the lifetime of a wind turbine, as Søren says, the bottom line matters, even at the bottom of the sea. The cost of the energy produced is important for getting public acceptance for using that energy source. The public acceptance, it goes with the cost. It's very simple. And uh, I mean, in some countries and some people are willing to pay a little on top if it's renewable. In other countries, people are not. But um, by uh, development of wind turbines, by development of technology, uh, we have now arrived at subsidy-free energy from offshore wind. Then we are no longer so reliant on whichever political climate we got, but we can, we can stick out the turbines and they produce and they don't need the subsidy. So, optimizing design, cutting costs, it can all make a difference when it comes to safeguarding the future. It's very simple. If we do not do it, things are going to go really wrong. And if we are not capable of providing electricity and energy at a reasonable cost, it's not going to catch on. We're all going to contribute our share of what we can. So... If we don't do it, um, well, I would rather say we got to do it. You've been listening to Ingenuity Talks, a ramble podcast about ideas that help solve global problems. 
In the next episode, we'll hear about groundwater depletion in California and elsewhere around the world and discover how a special helicopter can help us figure out what's going on underground. This podcast was produced by Lulpol in collaboration with Rambo. The sound design was produced by Christian Mondra. Head over to Rambo's Ingenuity homepage where you'll find links to the topics discussed today. My name is James Clasper. Thanks for listening.